Yeah, fraud's fraud's more fun. Like when you're, you know, on the like you're you're doing it, not reading about it. Wait, have you committed fraud, Jason? Yeah, of course. I mean, of course. Yeah, I came into this country illegally when I was four years old. <laughs> that's le- that's like legit fraud, right? I mean, is that fraud for fun? I mean, ever since being in America, I've had the time of my life. So, <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> well, good for you, man. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, for our listeners, everything got uh, worked out. <laughs> hey, everyone, and welcome to Wiki University, a podcast that dives down the rabbit hole of Wikipedia to explore the sum of all human knowledge. I'm Kyle Verseth, your host and dean of this fine institution, and as always, I'm joined by our summa cum laude himself, Jason Nunez. If this is your first time at WikiU, thanks for giving it a shot. Jason and I are comedians, and this is a podcast that combines learning and comedy. In every episode, Jason and I get together over Zoom and attempt to link two very different topics across Wikipedia. This week, Jason and I are drowning in knowledge as we dive deep into the sport of underwater rugby, uncover Fidel Castro assassination plots, and make our way to the salad oil scandal of 1963. I'm excited about my topic, to be honest, because it, it feels a re- uh, like a refreshing topic considering I'm in the desert. I've never heard you not excited about your topic, but hit me with it. <laughs> well, you know, I'm, you know I'm a huge sports guy. You know I'm a huge sports guy. You've talked a lot about your athletic endeavors on the podcast. You raced in the Tour de France once. You played high school football. Yep. A- and lest we not forget, I got through first cuts... On my freshman basketball team. First cuts on the freshman team. Whoa! Let's keep in mind. Whoa. Let's keep in mind real quick that Michael Jordan got cut when he was a freshman. Yeah, you might still make it to the NBA. <laughs> I'm, I mean, I'm hoping. <laughs> no, but I am excited about my uh, topic. It's refreshing considering I'm in this dry desert uh, called New Mexico. Yeah. Uh, my topic is uh, underwater rugby. Okay, which is a new sport. I haven't played underwater rugby, but I have played on above water above water rugby. That is correct, Kyle. Nice for uh, my high school, and I did a little semester at George Mason. I played for George Mason rugby. Whoa, one semester? Well, one season. One se oh, (laughs) one semester of rugby, (laughs) zero semesters of classes. (laughs) That is a hundred percent correct. <laughs> <laughs> you really, you really put the athlete in student athlete. Yeah, yeah. Oh, for sure. I was just athlete. They called they called me athlete athlete. That's all I was. But yeah, so I was ex- I was intrigued when I found out that you can also play rugby underwater for those who are you know 
Pescatellians. I think I've talked about it on the pod before, but I had a soccer coach who made us play rugby to toughen us up at practice. And, and I hated it as the smallest guy on the team, or one of the smallest. But then you add water to that, and I can't swim. This is the worst sport, in my opinion, underwater rugby. See, but if you could swim, the whole being little is not too much of a factor, I don't think, because you're underwater. Everyone's kind of... Yeah, but are, is there pulling down? Do you pull down? Do you pull people well, underneath? Well, let's find out, Kyle. I'm not sure exactly how you play rugby underwater. I am, I've only played above water rugby. All right. Well, let me tell you my topic. Uh, I don't know if we should start at my topic or start at underwater rugby. Mine's pretty specific. Mm. It also involves water. My topic is a little scandal. Ooh. Also known as a major corporate scandal in the 1960s called the salad oil scandal. Interesting. It involves commodities, which I know you're into trading and stocks and commods. I love commods. Big fan. I don't know if you knew this or not, but salad oil or vegetable oil, I guess they called it salad oil back in the day maybe, or maybe it's soybean oil. Interesting. It's oil. Yeah, yeah. I know it as vegetable oil, which I hate, by the way. I'm an olive oil guy myself. Once I moved out and started cooking by myself, I'd watch cooking shows sometimes and they were always like EVOO. What's what's EVOO? Extra virgin olive oil. Oh, yeah. Oh, I'm a huge fan. I didn't, honestly, I didn't know that uh, EVOO was, is that, did you just make that up or is that like what That's it's- That's industry standard, <laughs> man. I didn't. Everybody knows that. I didn't know that. I didn't know that. My fault. You No, everybody knows it. <laughs> oh, all right. Extra virgin. The Italians demand it. Yeah. <laughs> the, the Greeks demand it. They don't want that semi-virgin olive oil where it's like it's like Catholic olive oil. So they're like, well, not before marriage, but in the butt. Right. That's right. like exactly. No, we want extra virgin. But that's but that's Greek though. The Greeks are for the butt, and they're like extra virgin because nothing else has been touched. Well, the butt got touched. Yeah, I mean, you forgot. You know, you got to go Greek sometimes. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> I think you lost me. <laughs> That's like the old school version uh, or or um, lingo of saying like taking up the butt. Go Greek. You got to go Greek. Greek Orthodox. <laughs> That's just butt. That's just butt stuff. Which I guess would say a lot of Catholics are Greek Orthodox, if you ask me, because they don't count it as, you know, sex. So Right. They don't count it as sex, but it's the devil's playground. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so where do you want to start? Do you want to start at underwater rugby or salad oil scandal? Let's go um, broad to specific. All right, so start at underwater rugby? Yeah. Let me tell you a little bit about the salad oil scandal first. Okay, yes, it's yes. A, it's a pretty short article, so I'll just give you some quick things. It happened, I believe, in like Bayonne, New Jersey. Let me just read a sentence. The salad oil scandal, also referred to as the soybean scandal, was a major corporate scandal in 1963 that caused over 180 million, which is 1.5 billion today, in losses to corporations including American Express, Bank of America, and Bank Lumi as well as many international trading companies. It's a scandal right up there with the subprime mortgage crisis. Oh, shit. It involved a, a, young, a young American Express, extra virgin American Express <laughs> back in the day. Uh, it involved fraud. It involved 
Food for Peace, which is some a government agency. It involves soybeans. I see a link here for conspiracy, too. So we could find fraud, conspiracy. Maybe people have been cheating at underwater rugby. Someone got caught using a snorkeler. <laughs> hey, does that guy have an oxygen tank on his back? <laughs> Does he have those like flip flipper shoes on? Like <laughs> flipper shoes. Well, I guess they all have it. Flipper apparently. shoes. I don't know what they're called. <laughs> all right, here we go. Here's underwater rugby, also known as UWR, is an underwater team sport. During a match, two teams try to score a negatively buoyant ball, which is filled with salt water, into the opponent's goal at the bottom of a swimming pool. It originated from within the physical fitness training regime existing in German diving clubs during the early 1960s and has little in common with rugby football except the name. Cool. <laughs> it was recognized by the some confederation CMAS in 1978 and was first played as a world championship in 1980. Do you want to go to the history or do you want to go to play? I think we should go to play first. Yes. It is played underwater in a pool with a depth of 3.5 meters to 5 meters and goals, which are heavy metal buckets with a diameter of about 40 centimeters. All this metric. Um, So the buckets are at the bottom of the pool. Two teams, which are blue and white. They just have to be blue or white? I guess. Yeah, that's kind of weird. It it. says blue and white. Yeah. The Germans are very limited in uh, expressing themselves, it seems like. (laughs) So uh, two teams, blue and white, each with six players, plus six substitutes, try to score a goal by sending the slightly negatively buoyant ball filled with salt water into an opponent's goal. It is a fast and exhausting game, therefore the subs replace their players on the fly. The ball may be passed in any direction, but must not leave the water. It flies about two meters or three meters before water resistance stops it. This makes good tactics and good positioning essential. The players need all sorts of different abilities, strength, speed, agility, or good team play, and they're all similarly important. So there's a bucket on each end of the pool, and they're trying to get the ball in the bucket. It should be called underwater basketball. I, that's what I was my, my thinking, especially when you mentioned buckets, and there's two. <laughs> <laughs> you know what i mean like what like okay all right here's part of the history in 1961 a member of the german underwater club in cologne ludwig von bersuda came up with the idea of an underwater ball game hey there air-filled balls are not suitable for underwater games as they are buoyant and always return to the surface the first underwater ball was invented when Bursuta filled the ball with salt water. Since the density of the ball was now greater than that of normal water, it no longer floated to the surface, but slowly sank to the bottom. Okay. The sink rate could, within certain limits, be controlled by the concentration of the salt solution. As soccer balls are too large to be practical, water polo balls are used. So you could also call this underwater polo. Underwater water polo. (laughs) Ludwig von Bersuda, boy, let's just call him Ludwig from now on. Ludwig spanned the middle of the pool with a net, as in volleyball, that stopped one meter above the pool bottom. Two teams played against each other. The offense team had to carry the ball to the opposing field and put it into a bucket. 
the idea for the game was ready, and the DUC, Diving Underwater Club or whatever, Cologne used it to warm up before normal training. Hmm. Other teams saw this and started to use saltwater-filled balls themselves. The Cologne discipline was demonstrated as a competition sport at the National Games in 1963, probably the first official game with an underwater ball. At the time, though, there was not much interest shown. Not like today, where it's crazy popular. We have, I mean, Yeah, we have the U.S. team. I mean, you can't keep me out of the pool. <laughs> so, I'm a, real quick, I'm a little confused. So, the ball that has, um, uh, what's it called? Salt water. So... Does it? It just it's it take it's slower to go up and out of the water. It's just it takes longer. Yeah, it's longer. not as buoyant gotcha. as the fresh water around it. And so basically, the last team to touch it and the ball goes up and touches the air or whatever above water, that would be like uh, like it's out or some out of bounds, basically, right? I don't know. I don't know. They didn't go into all the rules here, and nor will we. <laughs> Let's get the hell out of this topic. We got to move on pretty quickly here. Cool. Dr. Franz Josef Grimmensen, a member of the German Underwater Club in Duisburg, a city near Cologne, decided to make a competitive sport from this ball game. Real quick. The German, the German le- Underwater Club. <laughs> this better be quick. It just sounds like some bullshit that's really like some Nazi shit. Oh yeah, I'm joining the the German underwater club. Where are you go- where are you going, honey? What are you so upset about? All we're doing is designing U-boats for underwater exploration. We're playing games. We're playing games. <laughs> we're just building dangerous submarines. <laughs> that's a good that's a good Yerman. Do you have some Yerman in you, by the way? I'm all Greek, if you know what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah. Hell yeah, Greek all the way. All right, go ahead. The German Lifeguard Association had founded a divers club and through contact with members of the the DUC, which was the underwater club, they learned about the game. So then the game started spreading. So then they arranged on Sunday, October 4th, 1964, a date which will live <laughs> in, the, in a big date in history. Uh, they had the first game. It took place between DLRG, Mulheim, and DUC Duisburg, and 18 people drowned. <laughs> DUC Duisburg won the game 5-2, and the next edition of the Esner something, some newspaper carried the story. And, you know, you get the media involved, and it just spread like wildfire. So, anyway, there's a governing body now. They play it all over the world, it looks like. So they don't have a breathing device, so it's like they just have to go in, play, and then pop out for air, and then go back in, or... I'm just looking at the picture here. It looks like some of them are wearing that headgear, the little snorkels. Yeah, yeah. And they're all wearing flippers and diving and uh, swim hats. I'll have to watch with some video of actual gameplay because I'm interested. In, I'm just like, because first off, rugby, I mean, okay, I have to stop comparing it to rugby, obviously, but. Yeah, you need to get off the rugby Right, thing. but at, like any sport, it's clearly, you know, tox, uh, uh, taxing on the body and, and breathing. And I can't imagine doing that underwater while holding your breath. Like, Well, I told you, you need strength, speed, agility, good team play. Got it, got it, got it. I don't know about the fourth one. And you also need, here's the equipment. You need a diving mask, snorkel, fins. They're called fins, not flippers. (laughs) And a water polo cap. And you need a swimming pool. Okay, so this is an elitist sport. This is like a... 
this is the uh, the ice hockey of warm weather. Oh, that's true. You freeze that pool, you got an ice hockey. <laughs> Let's find a new topic here. There are pretty general topics that we could pick from. Okay, like swimming pool, Cologne, Germany. There's France. There's Eastern Bloc. Let's go Greek. What if underwater? What if Greek underwater rugby is just where you have to put the ball in your butthole in the in the opponent's butthole? Come on, Jason. Come on. That butthole is called a bucket. Uh, count me in. I'll I'll try to get drafted. If that's the game. <laughs> so the most interesting thing I think we heard was Eastern Bloc. Yeah, let's do it. Let's get cultured. Obviously, I don't know too much about that. Okay, I went to Eastern Bloc. The Eastern Bloc, also known as the Communist Bloc, the Socialist Bloc, and the Soviet Bloc, was the group of communist states of Central and Eastern Europe, East Asia, and Southeast Asia, Basically, the Eastern Bloc was all the communist Soviet Union countries. So it was like Czechoslovakia, East Germany, Republic of Poland, Hungary, Yugoslavia, Romania. Of course, the Eastern Bloc, it's about 800 different countries yeah, here. So Yeah, that's the Russians. Take, take, take. Let's see the foundation in history here. In 1922, the RSFSR, which I think is Russia, the Ukrainian SFR, and the Belarusian SSR, and something else as uh, Jesus Christ, the USSR the, RSS feed. R, yeah, RSS feed of the USSR uh, <laughs> approved the treaty of creation of the USSR. Oh, geez. So okay, that's the formation of the United Soviet. Russia, whatever it is, when they formed the Soviet Union. Soviet leader Joseph Stalin, who viewed the Soviet Union as a socialist island, stated that the Soviet Union must see that, quote-unquote, the present capitalist encirclement is replaced by a socialist encirclement. Boy, we've covered the Soviet Union quite a bit on this podcast. Do you find any interesting, um, what's it called, other topics in there? Here we go, here we go. The breakup of the Eastern Bloc began in 1956 with Nikita Khrushchev's anti-Stalinist speech, which was called On the Cult of Personality and Its Consequences. The speech was in favor of the Hungarian Revolution of 1956, which the Soviet Union suppressed. The Sino-Soviet split gave North Korea and North Vietnam more independence from both and facilitated the Soviet-Albanian split. The Cuban Missile Crisis preserved the Cuban Revolution from rollback by the United States. I went to Cuban Missile Crisis. Nice, nice. You know about the Cuban Missile Crisis? Uh, you know, a little bit. I, I swam around in that bay of pigs. Uh, you d- <laughs> oh, yum. Pork belly. Ooh, ooh, baby. Oh, now that's don't... a commodity. <laughs> Maybe we can go to Bay of Pigs pork belly commodity and get to soybean oil or some shit like that. Yeah. All right. The Cuban Missile Crisis, also know, uh, known as the October Crisis of 1962. That's Yeah, it's better known with that name. Yeah. <laughs> the Caribbean Crisis or the Missile Scare was a 13-day confrontation between the United States and the Soviet Union initiated by Soviet ballistic missile deployment in Cuba. The confrontation is often considered the closest the Cold War came to escalating into a full-scale nuclear war. Full-blown war. In response to the failed Bay of Pigs invasion of 1961, 
the presence of American Jupiter ballistic missiles in Italy and Turkey, Soviet leader Nikita Khrushchev agreed to Cuba's request to place nuclear missiles on the island to deter a future invasion. An agreement was reached during a secret meeting between Khrushchev and Fidel Castro in July 1962, and construction of a number of missile launch facilities started later that summer. Meanwhile, the 1962 United States elections were underway, and the White House had denied charges for months that it was ignoring dangerous Soviet missiles 90 miles from Florida. The missile preparations were confirmed when an Air Force U-2 spy plane produced clear photographic evidence of medium-range and intermediate-range ballistic missile facilities. When this was reported to President JFK, he then convened a meeting of the nine members of the National Security Council and five other key ad advisors in a group that became known as the Executive Committee of National Security Council also known as XCOM. After consultation with them, Kennedy ordered a naval blockade on October 22nd to prevent further missiles from reaching Cuba. The U.S. announced it would not permit offensive weapons to be delivered to Cuba and demanded that the weapons already in Cuba be dismantled and returned to the Soviet Union. If they got a return policy like Best Buy, then that shouldn't be a problem. Unless it's an iPhone, it's 14 days or less because I got fucked. <laughs> <laughs> well, if it's like an iPhone, those those missiles are going to be out of date almost immediately. <laughs> You're going to have to get new missiles every year. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, sorry, you can't plug these missiles in. Doesn't sync with your computer anymore. Tough luck. All right, I went to Bay of Pigs Invasion because I think... I think maybe the mob was involved in the Bay of Pigs invasion. Maybe. A lot of movies like The Irishman yeah. allude to that. I'm sure we could have used all the help we can get when it comes to, I don't know, world destruction or at least the destruction of you. What, what, I mean, you're saying they only had like uh, short to medium range missiles? Yeah, but 90 miles. I mean, you can at least take out Miami. Okay. S Florida. Cool. Right, yeah. Like, you could take out uh, Louisiana, probably. Oh, uh, well, I'd rather keep that. I mean... This isn't my decision of, like, what do we take out first? I mean, if we're taking out something, there's definitely some places in Florida that I'd like to, you know, drop into the ocean, probably, but... <laughs> oh, God. But I hate... All, yeah, it's just... it's what You know, everything you just said, it's just sounded like a big dick measuring contest between countries, and it's so fucking annoying. I think there was probably a legitimate threat and also, people were. Yeah, people I mean, definitely a legitimate threat. Definitely a legitimate threat, but that threat only comes from the dick measuring. Mm. <laughs> Is that how it works? I feel like, yeah. I mean, you know, you got the USSR and then you got America trying to fucking flex on everybody. And then a little, the little, little Paco over at uh, um, um, Cuba, you know. So sees that hey I can I can get a, I'm a, I'm a small guy but I can get one of these uh these big guys can help me out here you know I don't got a big enough dick but these two big swing dicks over here are lending me are are trying to lend me a couple inches or two Cuba's like hey let's do a collab yeah <laughs> yeah let's do a <laughs> remix come on we're close to the U S bring your missiles we'll uh we'll do a video we'll we'll start it with hey guys 
I'm here today with some Russians, and we got they brought their missiles, and we've got some great Cuban mixed drinks. Yeah. We're going to be showing you how to make some mixed drinks, and they're going to be firing off their missiles, and then we'll compare dick sizes. Yeah, what if it was like, a, yeah, it was like that. It was a, a Cuban missile, like, uh, unboxing <laughs> video. <laughs> So we just got this ship from the USSR, and we are... Okay, well, first let me say that this is a very, very nice box. <laughs> it has excellent packaging. I like the way it looks from the outside, so let's dive in. <laughs> that is oddly how they start. I have seen, like, one or two, and it's like, why are you explaining, like, the, the con- like the packaging? Like, who gives a fuck? Okay, as I pull out the missile, I can see, you know, they have this neoprene packaging and it has nice suction on the sides. <laughs> I really like the feel of that. It's uh, it's <laughs> it's heavy, so you know it, it feels like it's expensive, you know, it's heavy. This is an expensive missile. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be great. Okay, now all I have to do is plug it into my wall and... Oh, shit, I don't have right plug. Yeah. <laughs> God damn it. This I have to get an adapter. Ugh. Every time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. So I'm in the Cuban Missile Crisis. Bay of Pigs. Bay of Pigs. Invasion, yes. Mm, delicious. It was a failed landing operation on the southwestern coast of Cuba in 1961 by Cuban exiles who opposed Fidel Castro's Cuban Revolution. Covertly financed and directed by the U.S. government, the operation took place at the height of the Cold War and its failure led to major shifts in international relations between Cuba and the United States and the Soviet Union. See, I didn't know this. I thought it was the CIA that went in and actually did the invasion. I didn't know it was just Cuban exiles that were... No, because uh, it couldn't have been like official Americans because that would... Well, the CIA is hardly official. <laughs> Because then, if it was that, then you know you have the government involved, and then that creates the the illegal like uh, a war yeah, that creates exactly. a war. Like paperwork wise, that's a war right away. But <laughs> on paper, <laughs> on paper, yeah. If you got somebody that's official, you know. But then, but you just have the way they distinguish it is like, oh, we're just providing the money and the resources to get this done by people that are there, by Cubans themselves and stuff like that. So I think the U.S. has done that quite a bit in oh, uh, Panama, think- South America. Here's All right, so here's tensions with the United States, and I think maybe I do see something about the mafia in here, so I'm curious. Castro's Cuban government ordered the country's oil refineries, then controlled by U.S. corporations ESO, Standard Oil, and Shell to process crude oil purchased from the Soviet Union. But under pressure from the U.S. government, these companies refused. It always starts with oil, doesn't it? Oh, it's meant because it's money. Can't wait till we just use the sun and win. Uh, it's black gold, if you know what I mean. I know what you mean, baby. Castro responded by expropriating the refineries and nationalizing them under state control. In retaliation, the U.S. canceled its import of Cuban sugar, provoking Castro to nationalize most U.S.-owned assets, including banks and sugar mills. Relations between Cuba and the U.S. were further strained following the explosion and sinking of a French vessel, the Le Cobre, in Havana Harbor on March 1960. So this is all brewing. 
the U.S. government was becoming increasingly critical of Castro's revolutionary government. At an August 1960 meeting of the Organization of American States held in Costa Rica, U.S. Secretary of State, some dude, publicly proclaimed that Castro's administration was, quote-unquote, following faithfully the Bolshevik pattern by instituting a single-party political system, taking governmental control of trade unions, suppressing civil liberties, and removing both the freedom of speech and the freedom of press. He furthermore asserted that international communism was using Cuba as a quote-unquote operational base for spreading revolution in the Western Hemisphere. In August 1960, the CIA contacted the Cosa Nostra in Chicago with the intention to draft a simultaneous assassination of Fidel Castro, Raul Castro, and Che Guevara in exchange... The big three. The big three of revolutionaries. Yeah. <laughs> They're the original big three, of course. Uh, in exchange, if the operation were a success and a pro-U.S. government were restored in Cuba, the CIA agreed that the mafia would get their quote-unquote monopoly on gaming and prostitution and drugs. Oh, so that... If the mafia assassinates all three of those dudes, they're getting the gaming, the prostitution, and the drugs. And this was in Chicago. So basically, Chicago could have ended up like Las Vegas if they succeeded. Well, no, no, no. They get they get the gaming, prostitution, and drugs in Cuba. They would control all that in Cuba. Oh, oh God. Pika, pika, I believe okay. that's what it means. Ooh. So if they succeeded... I think prior to Castro, people would go down to Cuba kind of like people go to Tijuana from Southern California to like party and gamble and, you know, and do others, things they can't yeah. do in the U.S. Right. And go Greek. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You want to go Greek, you go to Tijuana, right? So you were saying they enlisted and these were like mobsters from Chicago, correct? To do what exactly? To organize the assassination or to for them to do it themselves or, or i don't know man they're just gonna take care of a few things if you know what i'm saying <laughs> but after we got a nice pizza pie <laughs> <laughs> all right tensions percolated when the cia began to act on its desires to snuff out castro the general public became aware of attempts to assassinate castro in 1975 when a report entitled Alleged assassination plots involving foreign leaders was released by the Senate Church Committee, blah, blah, blah. Efforts to murder Castro officially commenced in 1960. Some methods that the CIA undertook to murder Castro were creative. For example, quote, unquote, underwater rugby. <laughs> <laughs> that did start at the same time in Germany. Exactly. Like, We've been tested. Yep. <laughs> we heard Castro likes water. He likes rugby. Let's merge the two, yep. see if we can drown him in a bucket. Yep, we won't have problems uh, <laughs> luring him into that, so boom. <laughs> <laughs> so they got creative with poison pills, an exploding seashell, and a planned gift of a diving suit contaminated with toxins. So you're not far off. Wait, uh, wait what about the seashell? Like, so... Uh, I, exploding seashell yeah yeah he's just like oh i want to hear the ocean and then he puts it in his ear and boom it explodes there's a long wick coming <laughs> off of it down the beach <laughs> a guy with a lighter at exploding the exploding shell yeah yeah super creative <laughs> 
1963, uh, at the same time, the Kennedy administration initiated secret peace overtures to Castro, Cuban revolutionary and undercover CIA agent Rolando Cubella was tasked with killing Castro by CIA official Desmond Fitzgerald, who portrayed himself as a personal representative of Robert F. Kennedy. Oh, more traditional ways were also planned to kill him via high-powered rifles with telescopic sights. (laughs) So, you know... They're like, if the shell doesn't work, maybe just shoot him in the head. Stick to the classics. Yeah. So do you think the Cubans assassinated JFK? I think maybe the mob did it, man. Right? Because they didn't get what they were owed? Yeah, because Bay of Pigs. Whoops. And also, he was like, he was tight with Frank Sinatra. He was banging women left and right. And uh, his dad was a bootlegger. There were all these times. I mean, we're on another... Another topic Another here. Topic. Should we Ooh. go to? We could go to the. We could go to JFK and the assassination. A lot of people know about that. Yeah, no, we're good. We're trying to get to some illegal activities here, so maybe going to the mafia. Definitely. All right, we're on mafia. Uh, a mafia is a type of organized tr- crime syndicate whose primary activities are protection, racketeering arbitrating disputes between criminals and brokering and enforcing illegal agreements and transactions. The term mafia derives from the Sicilian mafia. Mafias often engage in secondary activities such as gambling, loan sharking, drug trafficking, prostitution, and fraud. I bet we could go to fraud and get to soybean oil scandal kind of quickly. Yeah, no, that's true. I think, and also, look, I mean... And you've said mafia a couple of times. I don't think that's a proper nomenclature uh, anymore. They prefer it's it's pretty derogatory. They prefer to be called the mob, not mafia anymore. Is yeah. that right? Yep. The term is applied informally by the press and public. The criminal organizations themselves have their own terms. I think they just like to be called the Sopranos now. So here's two ways I think we could get to. This soybean, this uh, vegetable salad oil scandal. We could go to fraud more generally and maybe find specifically fraud. Or we could go to Italian organized crime. Now, I don't think Italian organized crime was involved in this scandal. I'm pretty sure. But it was in their region. It was in Bayonne, New Jersey. Right. You know, I bet there were some things going on up there. Right. Well, look, off off the bat, I'll warn you, we go the Italian route, I might get a little racist. But I, I'm I'm actually more I'm more interested in the fraud, to be honest, just because like there's so much in there and I would like to see what other fraud you know, you know, history, the history of fraud. I guarantee we could get to Italian oil. Italian oil scandal? Oh my god, <laughs> what am I saying? <laughs> hey, you beat me to it. Cool. <laughs> All right, I'll go to fraud. I bet it's in here because I bet you can just go to like list of frauds. We can go. We can dip a little bit into Italian, but I, 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 I just am interested to see like what other like big fraud, you know, things okay. uh, happen in the U.S. that involves again giant corporations and shit like that. You know, I'm a little worried this is gonna be. Mostly the legal side of things, but here we go. Fraud. In law, fraud is intentional deception to secure unfair or unlawful gain or to deprive a victim of a legal right. Fraud can violate civil law, which is 
A fraud victim may sue the fraud perpetrator to avoid the fraud or recover monetary compensation. A criminal law, which is a fraud perpetrator, may be prosecuted and in prison, or it may cause no loss of money. Just fraud for the fun of it. <laughs> you know? <laughs> uh, property or legal right would still be an element of another civil or criminal wrong. The purpose of fraud may be monetary gain or other benefits. For example, by obtaining a passport, travel document, or driver's license, or mortgage fraud, where the perpetrator may attempt to qualify for a mortgage by way of false statements. Mm. Ah. A hoax is a distinct concept that involves deliberate deception without the intention of gain or of materially damaging or depriving a victim. Now, that's just a hoax. It's just fraud for fun. <laughs> Some people just like duping other people. So here we go. They In the contents here, we could go... By region, North America, Canada, United States, criminal fraud. There's civil fraud. What do you um, think, Jason? Do you want to go? Why don't we stick in the U.S. here? Yeah, always like to stick it in the U.S. The proof requirements <laughs> for criminal fraud charges in the United States are essentially the same as the requirements for other crimes. Guilt must be proved beyond a reasonable doubt. Throughout the United States, fraud charges can be misdemeanors or felonies depending on the amount of loss involved. High-value fraud can also trigger additional penalties. For example, in California, losses of 500000 or more will result in an extra two, three, or five years in prison in addition Ooh. to the regular penalty of the fraud. Wow. I mean, if you want to go Greek, that's okay then because prison is... Where you go Greek the most. Oh, uh, yeah. Maybe you should commit extra fraud. Yeah, exactly. The U.S. government's 2006 fraud review concluded that fraud is a significantly underreported crime. And while various agencies and organizations were attempting to tackle the issue, greater cooperation was needed to achieve a real impact in, public, in the public sector. This is kind of boring. No. Fraud? Yeah, this is a little boring. The, the logistical side of fraud? I want some no. scandal here. <laughs> yeah, fraud's fraud's more fun like when you're, you know, on the like you're you're doing it, not reading about it. Wait, have you committed fraud, Jason? Yeah, of course. I mean, of course. Yeah, I came into this country illegally when I was 4 years old. <laughs> that's le that's like legit fraud, right? I mean Is that fraud for fun? I mean, ever since being in America, I've had the time of my life, so <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> well, good for you, man. <laughs> but uh, for our listeners, everything got uh, worked out. <laughs> <laughs> I just I just had to spend uh, some time in a couple of Greek prisons. <laughs> now I'm full Greek with a work permit, so I'm good to go, baby. Well, fraud can be committed through and across many media, including mail, wire, phone, and the internet. You know, if you're a fraudster, maybe you want to diversify a little bit. Given the international, can I be honest? I love that word, fraudsters. You are, a you're, yeah, you're a small-time fraudster. <laughs> I'm a, I'm a first-time, one-time, a little fraudster. Well, you might. <laughs> All right, so here we go. Further reading. I think maybe we could get to the salad oil scandal. This is list of notable fraudsters. That's me. I hope my name is in there. I'm a, I'm a little fraudster. Notable fraudsters. Notable fraudsters. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Yeah. 
<laughs> totally forgot about that. Notable fraudsters, notable fraudsters. Uh... All right, I clicked on uh, notable fraudsters. And let me tell you, there's a list here. I can't remember the guy's name off of... Let me look at the salad oil scandal. We're trying to look for Anthony Tino DeAngelis. Anthony! Hey, he's Italian, so you could still do hey, your Italian Anthony. voice. Hey, where's my vegetable oil? <laughs> All right, so here are some notable fraudsters. Here's one you've heard of, Frank Abagnale Jr., he was yes. the basis of the movie Catch Me If You Can. Correct. He Played was an American Leo. imposter who wrote bad checks in 12 countries until arrested in 1969, falsely represented himself as a qualified member of professions such as airline pilot, doctor, attorney, and teacher. That was a good movie. I enjoyed that movie. I like how like the moral of that story is like, like it's bad to do fraud, but if you're like super good at it, you can just start helping out the government. Like Be on switch sides and you're good to go. Well, I think a lot of these fraudsters probably end up helping the government because right. they're because they have to. Yeah, they have no choice. Otherwise, yeah. they'll they'll they go, go to, to Greek, Greek prison, prison like I did. <laughs> <laughs> there it is. <laughs> now we're in it. <laughs> now, we're, now we're in it. Here's this guy's. This guy was killing it as a fraudster. Eddie Anter, founder of Crazy Eddie has criminal convictions on 17 counts and about 1 billion worth of civil judgments against him stemming from fraudulent accounting practices at that company. I got to quickly, we're going back here because I want to We have find to go to Crazy Eddie's. I mean, I've performed, at, I've performed at Crazy Eddie's. I've done a gig at Crazy Eddie's. Whoa, Crazy Eddie. It's just Crazy Eddie. No apostrophe S. So it's just Crazy Eddie. Come buy some stuff. Crazy Eddie was a consumer electronics chain in the northeastern United States. The chain was started in 1971 in Brooklyn, New York, by businessmen Eddie and Sam M. Antar. Uh, The chain rose to prominence throughout the tri-state region as much for its prices as for its memorable radio and television commercials featuring a frenetic, crazy character played by radio DJ Jerry Carroll. Uh, who copied most of his shtick, another little fraudster, who copied most of his shtick from early TV commercial pioneer, used car and electronic salesman, Earl Madman Muntz. Yo, so this is like the birth of like those commercials of like, come over to Crazy Eddie's and we got used cars here for sale. You come on down, no credit, no problem. <laughs> I'm a fraudster. We'll make it work. I mean, I can't think of a bigger fraudster than a used car salesman. So. Oh my God, you gotta look up Earl Madman Muntz's picture. God, that's such a that's such a good name. Uh, he was an American businessman and engineer who sold and promoted cars. There you go, and consumer electronics in the United in the United States from the 1930s until his death in 1987. He was a pioneer in television commercials with his oddball quote unquote madman persona, an alter ego who generated publicity with his unusual costumes, stunts, and outrageous claims. He also pioneered car stereos by creating the Muntz Stereo Pack, better known as the four-track cartridge, a predecessor to the eight-track. Well, there you go. Yeah. Um, th- I mean, I could just keep going here. After his success as a used car salesman, Muntz founded the Muntz Car Company, which made the Muntz Jet, a sports car with jet-like contours. Okay, Muntz. Now, now Muntz never... 
Muntz never committed fraud, though, right? Or, or I think he was a good dude. He was just wild and crazy. Oh, wild and crazy cat. That's so funny. Yeah, no, I've always, that's I never even thought about that. About like the 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 like who was the first like person to have that crazy like commercials and stuff like that. Because you you just I mean growing up you just heard of them, saw them. You just know of that. You know of that energy of that. Classic. And it was usually like local commercials. Definitely, definitely, right, right, right. Played during the prices, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like just those lower budget commercials. You know, it's all filmed outside. It's like too light. It's too, the white balance is completely off. Like, yeah. This Munts guy is something else. He invented the car. He had a Munts TV that he invented. No, I'm just, I'm learning too much, Kyle. You're hurting my head. Sorry, 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 <laughs> man. <laughs> all right. Uh, notable fraudsters. Notable fraudsters. Notable fraudsters. Uh... Uh, let's see, Jordan Belfort, who we know from Wolf of Wall Street. Hey, here we go. Here's our guy, Tino DeAngelis. Hey, Anthony. Anthony. It's, by the way, it's Anthony, not Anthony. It's Anthony. Uh, I think you might even be pronouncing the O a little too much. It might just be <laughs> Antony. Antony. <laughs> Ant. I think you're right. It's Ant. Yeah, Antony. Antony. Well, we have Tino DeAngelis, perpetrator of the 1963 salad oil scandal, which ultimately caused over 180 million in losses, which is 1.5 billion today, to 51 corporations. I'm going to salad oil scandal. Nice. We made it. Oil scandal. The salad oil scandal, also referred to as the soybean scandal, was a major corporate scandal in 1963 that caused over $180 million in losses to corporations, including American Express. Oh, no. These corporations lost money. <laughs> uh, American Express, Bank of America, and Bank Lumi. I've never heard of Bank Lumi. Which maybe they went out of business, as well as Probably. many international trading companies. The scandal's ability to push otherwise cautious and conservative lenders into increasingly risky practices has prompted some comparisons to later financial crises, including the 2007 2008 subprime mortgage crisis. The scandal involved the Allied Crude Vegetable Oil Company in New Jersey, owned by Antony Tino. DeAngelis, a former commodities broker. DeAngelis had been in trouble with the law previously for supplying schools with beef from uncertified sources under the National School Lunch Act. What the fuck, man? Fuck this dude. Take the beef. Come on, take the beef. <laughs> Look, I don't care if you're fucking duping these corporations, but you can't be fucking duping the food that goes inside of children. Kids? Like, what the fuck? <laughs> it's yeah. just uncertified beef. It's beef. It's just <laughs> uncertified. Gray D beef. All right, so here's what happened. DeAngelis was awarded a contract with Food for Peace, a federal program which sold excess food stocks to poor countries. Oh. He discovered that he could obtain loans based upon Allied's fraudulently inflated inventory of salad oil. Ships supposedly full of salad oil for Allied would dock and inspectors would certify the cargo, allowing Allied to post the oil as collateral and obtain millions of dollars in bank loans. In reality, the ship's tanks contained only water, with a few feet of salad oil floating on top to trick inspectors. 
When inspectors audited Allied's facilities, the company would transfer the same oil stock from tank to tank to fool the inspectors while entertaining them during lunch. I would love to, yeah, to see like the guy in play who's got to like make sure that you know the people don't see what's going on in the back. Whoa, hey, so uh, you want to come over here? <laughs> don't look at that tank. That tank's not ready. Yeah. In all, Allied posted 1.8 billion pounds of soybean oil as collateral to fraudulently obtain 180 million dollars in loans when the actual stock was a mere 110 million pounds. So they reported 1.8 billion pounds. They only had 110 million pounds of soybean oil. Yeah, and that's why, yeah, that's money. Like, money is such bullshit. Like, that, like all these people who are ri- rich or whatever you want to call it, it's like you're not really wealthy so much as you have, like, all these loans out that you inevitably have to pay, but you probably won't because you're a piece of shit. Right, you'll get another loan, and uh, it exactly. increases your net worth, and it's a pyramid yep. scheme. Right. Until you die. Exactly. It's uh, really a beautiful thing that can only be created <laughs> here. <laughs> and that's why I came to the U.S. <laughs> Here's the impact. The scandal was exposed when the Russian soybean market did not open up and soybean prices fell drastically as a result, causing the investors to attempt to cash in. So the market fell. People were freaking out. They're like, I got to cash in on my soybean. No, but it just goes to show you how like, yeah, the, the whole money system is very... It's fragile. It, every, everybody is involved. That's why when something happens here and Trump tweets something, then like, Stocks go down and then China does something else to pull out or whatnot. And other countries are like, whoa, like every everyone gets affected by everything. Yeah, I mean, that. well, like you said, the it's all a pyramid scheme kind of of credit. And like right. the subprime mortgage, it all collapsed. And it's usually the little people that get affected. It's not the Bank of America's that, that get right. affected. Not the, they get and, bailed out. Yeah, only the little people like American Express, they get affected. <laughs> yeah. Here's what happened. American Express stock dropped more than 50% as a result, which cost the company nearly $58 million. DeAngelis was convicted of fraud and conspiracy charges in connection with the scandal and served seven years in prison, gaining his release in 1972. Seven years for fraud? Like, that's... that's no, that's nothing seven years yeah that's not and then did he come i mean i know he came out and like i'm sure he's not like poor he's not like i have a funny feeling he stuck to uh his guns fraudsters yeah, just, st- okay right. here we go i i clicked on uh tony DeAngelis or uh anthony in 1972, DeAngelis was released. By 1975, he was involved in another scam. This time, a Ponzi scheme involving cattle in the Midwest. It's when you stack cattle like a house of cards. <laughs> uh, okay, what here's what he did on this one. DeAngelis used two slaughterhouses, Rex Pork and Mr. Pork, to swindle livestock dealers in Indianapolis out of $7 million, approximately $31 million in, two hundred, in 2016 dollars, worth of hogs. $7 million worth of hogs. Hey, back to the pork fat here. Hell yeah. Two of the top livestock dealers facing losses were M&R Livestock and Farrow and Company. DeAngelis continued trading with these livestock dealers via fraudulent letters promising payment. So yeah, that's it. That's that's the end of the article. Oh, so when I went to Anthony's article, 
it tells a little more actually than the actual article. So here's okay, here's the scheme exposed. Here's his side of the story. <laughs> <laughs> this article, as edited by Anthony DeAngelis, <laughs> edited in 2008, right before he died. And there's a number of things we already kind of talked about and maybe some interesting history here. Inspectors Mm -hmm. were eventually tipped off by bribery attempts and delivery mistakes. They inspected Allies' tanks again and this time found the water. A massive soybean oil futures crash ensued and wiped out the value of the loan collateral in minutes. On November 19, 1963, DeAngelis' company filed for bankruptcy Investors found hundreds of millions of dollars in unaccounted funds. The financial integrity of the dealers behind DeAngelis's futures trades was now in question. Traders scurried to recover their funds after the New York Stock Exchange worried about a U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission investigation suspended... Wilston and Bean and Ira has somebody's trading privileges. It sounds like a, a morning radio show hosts. <laughs> hey, welcome back to the morning zoo with Wilston and Bean. Let's cover the stocks. Invest <laughs> in soybean. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be great if D if uh, disc jockeys did like like that energy, but with like boring shit like that. Yeah, I you think know? that's called Jim Kramer. <laughs> mad money. It's called mad money. Dude, that guy's such a piece of shit, man. Of I can't. Course. How is he still on television? How is he still giving recommendations? Why are people still taking? He's entertaining. His... People are fucking stupid, man. That that kind of shit pisses me off. All right, so the entire debacle played out with assassination of United States President John F. Kennedy on November twenty second, nineteen sixty three, as a background. Because I guess that happened November 19th, 1963. He gets murdered four days later, three days later, whatever. Hours before Kennedy was shot, New York Stock Exchange President G. Keith Funston attempted to avert a market crash as Ira Haup's 20,700 customers fearing financial ruin scrambled to sell their oil holdings before they became worthless. Because of all the trades the brokerage firm did on DeAngelis' behalf, various banks were left holding the bag with over $37 million in uncoverable loans. As the Kennedy assassination threw the market into a panic, 2.6 million shares were sold and the Dow dropped 24 points, or 5%, in 27 minutes. Damn. The exchange was forced to close 83 minutes early. So okay, so you're saying not only was the J- – because like, this happened right before the JFK. So you're saying that, the oil shit, and then JFK and then, went like yeah. just two punches, right? Yeah, right. Two uppercuts right there. Yeah, the so like when everyone's trying to sell their oil commodities, there's not, a, there's not the money to pay them off. So things yep. collapse, I believe. And then yep, on top yep. of that, Kennedy gets assassinated. Probably because Shit. of the Bay of Pigs by the Mafia, who was also siphoning the oil. <laughs> <laughs> it was planned. It was all planned. This all goes together. I think we may have reached some new sort of conspiracy. Yeah. yeah. This is the no lesser joke. known we JFK have... assassination conspiracy. <laughs> yeah. You know what really killed JFK? Soybeans. Soybeans. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So here's another interesting tidbit. This is about Warren Buffett. 
The U.S. attorney for the District of New Jersey, some dude, charged DeAngelis with contempt after he found DeAngelis had funneled over $500,000 from Allied into his personal account at a Swiss bank. American Express was forced to make good on their warehouse contracts and took a massive loss. The two trading firms were eventually bought by larger players. In the wake of the scandal, keen observer and investor Warren Buffett took advantage of the plunge in the price of American Express shares and bought 5% of the company for only $20 million. And then American Express is what it is now, and he got rich as hell. That's a small part of why he got rich, but yeah, definitely. Yeah. All right, and that is the salad oil scandal. Yeah, that's crazy. I really think we 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 went into some sort of new conspiracy theories because it's it's just too close, man. All the pins that I have <laughs> connecting the strings. Yep, they from all JFK to Bay of Pigs to the soybean uh, fraud. Yeah, for sure. To cast the attempted murder of Castro via underwater rugby. Yeah. <laughs> what if? What if? Okay. What if they were trying to murder him by throwing him into a pool full of soybean uh, oil? Just the top part is full of yeah. soybean. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Nice, man. Okay, well, I, I learned a lot. Definitely a lot of this. Ve- I didn't know if oil was, you know, and very important in terms of people's finances, those, those, those higher ups. But I did not know that vegetable oil and like, you know, it's just the food, which makes sense. Of course, it's food. You're feeding the whole, you know, farming, all that stuff. Um, yeah, they use they use the oil to grease people's palms. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> As they do in the mob. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And also, you know, they, they use the oil to uh, get ready for some Greekin'. Oh, yeah. You want to lube that up. Yeah. All right. Well, let's wrap this up here. Let's uh, let's sign off, huh? This has been another episode of WikiU. I've been Kyle Berseth. You can follow me on Instagram at Kyle Berseth. And Jason, where, where can people find you? People can find me on Instagram. I'm at at Laftinas, at Laftinas, L-A, Laftinas. And you can find me on Twitter as well, at Jason Nunez, my name. And uh, if you get a chance, guys, I have another podcast that I would like to push a little bit. It's a brand new podcast. It's a sports podcast. I told you I'm a sports guy, okay? I'm uh, I'm, I'm a relatively novice fan of motorsports, specifically F1. And I started a motorsport F1 podcast with a mutual friend of ours, Lafayette Wright. And it's called Ooh. Lewis Hamilton is dope as fuck and you are not. And it's everything. Did you get the rights for that? Oh, we haven't yet. <laughs> but it's up and running, baby. Dude, if you can get sued by Lewis Hamilton, great publicity. Right? Exactly. That's where, that's where, we're, where our heads were at. So we got three episodes in right now. I'm not exactly sure when this episode's coming out, but uh, we have uh, new episodes weekly. We're three episodes in. Uh, you can find us on iTunes and Spotify. And uh, it's everything F1, but also it's obviously, you know, entertainment, culture. Lafayette uh, is big into the video games, specifically F1 and other racing sports like that. So covering it all and uh, check uh, check us out. Hell yeah. Check that out. You can also find my other podcast, The Roamers Book Club on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And music for the show was provided by Davey and the Chains, and you can find them on Spotify. And that's it. Until next week. Till next week. Bye-bye. That's a spicy meatball. Hey, that's a, a spicy meatball.
that's milky. And beans.